So basically what I'm going to do as I begin talking about this, I'm gonna start with an example from my own life of how the fear of man, well, as I sought to conquer the fear of man, some uh, an example of how what I had to do in order for that to happen, but what I'm wanting to do is think about how the fear of man is harmful to us in the church body. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start out with that, then I'm going to break it down talk about the Apostle Paul and what he has to say when he talks in Galatians about if you if you have the fear of man then you're not a bond slave of Christ and then go into the fear of man how to please the Lord and then sum it all up at the end with okay so in the church body then these are the things we need to be aware of so it because it's not gonna all sound like I'm directly talking about how the fear of man affects us in the church. And so I just want you to know I'm going to start out that way and I'm going to come back around to that. So that just kind of gives you a little idea of where I'm going. The fear of man used to be a besetting sin in my life. And even though I have matured over the years, it is still something I must continue to evaluate. When I took the counseling training course 12 or 13 years ago, one of the assignments included specifically identifying and putting off a particular sin in your life. So I chose to work on the sinful fear of man, also referred to that project as the PIP, if you've heard that before. It didn't take long before the Lord began to provide opportunities for me to directly face my fear of people. It came in the form of confrontation, which is something I had spent my entire life trying to avoid. As much as my sinful flesh screamed to avoid confrontation, I knew if I was going to put off my sinful fear of man, I had to put on obedience to God's word by being willing to speak truth and love. I would like to share one particular instance that provided an opportunity for me to practice the biblical principles of confrontation rather than living by my habitual pattern of sinful fear. Craig and I were asked by one of the elders to join a meeting where he intended to address another couple in the church who were living in a pattern of sin that had become evident. Because we had had extensive interaction with this couple, we were asked to share our concerns with them by directly confronting what we had observed. Because I had been specifically seeking to conquer my fear of man, I recognized this as an opportunity to exercise my faith through obedience to God's word. However, that did not make the meeting any easier just because I had that knowledge. Instead, I found it to be unimaginably difficult. For days beforehand, I had butterflies in my stomach at the mere thought of the meeting. The day of the meeting, my stomach felt upset all day long, and my heart rate would randomly escalate from time to time. If any of you can relate to this, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. As we walked into the meeting, my mouth turned dry and my hands felt clammy. I wondered if everyone in the room could see my heart racing since it felt like it was gonna jump right out of my chest. You know, that kind of heartbeat, like we're even struggling to breathe. I wanted to be anywhere than in that room at that particular moment. However, I recognized that unity in the body was vital and I could not allow my fear of others to hinder the biblical mandate to speak truth and love. And in that particular instance, speaking truth in love required that 
we have this meeting and we talk about it. That was the most loving thing I could do for that couple. But as my, in my life overall, when I had come face to face with situations like this, I did not love people well because I would walk away from that. I didn't want to deal with the fact that maybe they wouldn't like me. Maybe it would hinder the, the friendship that we had. And so I would always avoid confrontation that was necessary because what is true love? Love is doing whatever is most helpful for the other person to walk with God, to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. But I loved myself so much that I didn't want to confront somebody else in love because that might mean that I would look bad, that I would be rejected, and all kinds of other things. So I share that with you because it relates to the chapter that we read this week on dealing with problem people in the church. And you're going, yeah, he didn't talk about the fear of man. You're right, he didn't. If we are controlled by the fear of man, we cannot function properly with one another in the body. Because this fear is rooted in pride and selfishness, it hinders us from loving others in a manner that scripture requires. The sinful fear of man enslaves us and fosters a self-preservation that keeps us from doing what is best for others, particularly if it means that we may be rejected, ridiculed, underappreciated, ignored, or dismissed, and on and on. Thus, when we are held captive by seeking the approval of others, the proper function of the church is destroyed. So as he talked about anxiety from the perspective of problem people within the church, I am talking about it, taking it like kind of just as a stepping off point, a jumping off point here, that if we are unwilling to speak truth in love to, to people that are wrestling within the church, then we are not functioning in the body as we ought to. And all that he talked about in 1 Thessalonians 5, we are not going to practice that because we are unwilling to confront somebody in love. So that's kind of where we're going. So as we consider our wrestle against the sinful fear of man, I'm going to give you a definition, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. Of course, we have to have questions, right? So here's a definition from Ed Welch's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. He says this, fear in the biblical sense is a much broader word than merely being terrified by other people. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, or putting your trust in people. So here are some questions to help you evaluate. And actually this is on the back side of your sheet because I knew as I was reading these, I was gonna go pretty fast. And if you wanna look at them later, you can. So number one, I worry about what people think of me. And if you immediately recognize, you can just put a little tick by it. You can just evaluate your heart as we go, whatever suits you. Number two, I value the approval of people in leadership. So do you get super nervous when Chris comes around? That would be the fear of man, just saying. Uh, number three, I struggle with being a respecter of persons and showing favoritism. Number four, I believe that being rejected is one of the worst things that a person could possibly experience. Number five, I avoid conflicts rather than trying to resolve them. 
Number six, when meeting new people, I spend more time thinking about what they think of me rather than how to minister to them. Number seven, my fear of being rejected paralyzes me to the extent that it keeps me from getting close to others. Number eight, <clears throat> I do not witness to others as I should because I fear being criticized or rejected. Number nine, I overreact to criticism by dwelling on it too long or unnecessarily allowing it to depress me. Number 10, I love others to see how much spiritual knowledge I have. Number 11, I sometimes talk negatively about others, this would be gossip, to show them that I am right, to get positive attention on me, or to gain approval from those with whom I am talking. And number 12, I get upset or discouraged when others don't recognize how much effort I have put into a certain ministry or in serving others. So there, we could just continue with a very extensive list of areas that the fear of man affects how we interact with people. I tried to choose questions that more directly related with how we interact within the church body. So there can be a whole bunch of other things that we, that, you know, we respond sinfully in as well. But these, I, I really did want you to really consider how the fear of man hinders us as a body as we function together as women. So if you are squirming right now, it might be because you wrestle with the fear of man. And to be honest, we all struggle with the fear of man in one way or another. Here are a couple of examples that I thought I would just present to you very quickly from scripture because I just want you to even, if you already know this, even to be reminded of it in this context. So capital A, the fear of man is not uncommon. So the first example we have is Abraham. So Genesis 12, 11, and 13, 11 through 13 says this, It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with you because of so that it will, <laughs> so that it will go well with me because of you and that I may live on the account of you. So, Abraham clearly was living in the fear of man. So number two, we have Peter as well. So from Luke 22, 56 through 62, this is a little bit longer, but I think we need the whole passage here. And you actually are familiar with it. So starting in verse 56, and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, this is the man, this man was with him too. But he, Peter, denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. He's talking of Jesus, remember. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and whipped, wept bitterly, because Peter was more afraid of the people that would reject him than he was of, of being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. 
Clearly the fear of man is not uncommon to us. Even giants of the faith like Abraham and Peter had their own wrestles with it. But as their faith matured, their trust in God grew and the fear diminished, which to me is just so comforting as we think through this. If this is a place that you wrestle, God is powerful enough to help you grow in this area. My life is personal testimony of that. I continue to have to work through that in various areas, but I'm not enslaved to it anymore. As Abraham grew spiritually, he demonstrated his trust in God to the point of being willing to sacrifice his son. You remember, he was willing to take Isaac up and sacrifice him because here's the thing. If we fear man, we are not trusting God. And so we see when Abraham is still young and immature in his faith that he did not trust God to the point of allowing Sarai to be his wife as he went into Egypt. But as he grew, his faith in God grew to such a degree that even taking Isaac up to sacrifice him, he had perfect trust in God. And of course, we know of Peter as well. Here he denied Christ three times. And yet later on, what happened? Peter himself was martyred for his faith, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So this is an area that we can grow. So the next example that we have here is the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more extensively. Um, if we can say extensively, because nothing is extensive as we kind of bounce around here, but I am going to break this down a little bit for you so you get an idea of where Paul was coming from, his fear of man, and that kind of thing. So Paul also wrestled with the fear of man, but it was before his conversion. So with Abraham and Peter, they both uh, already knew the Lord. Um, Abraham, of course, was the Old Testament, so he did not place his trust in Christ, but he, he placed his trust in God, knowing that God would send the Messiah eventually. But uh, Paul struggled with the fear of man before his conversion. But after Christ saved him on the road to Damascus, he became wholly devoted to Christ and referred to himself as a bond slave of Christ. So I'd really like you guys to turn with me to Galatians 1.10. And I'm just going to read this one verse. But if this is something that you wrestle with, I would highly recommend underlining this and memorizing this verse. So Galatians 1.10 says this. For am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant, or we can say bond slave of Christ. So notice the comparisons going on in this verse. Paul makes it clear that we cannot seek the favor of God and man at the same time. They are entirely opposed to each other. Either we are the bond slave of Christ or we seek to please people. We cannot do, the, do both at the same time. It's going to be one or the other. So small a on your outline, we cannot fear man and be a bond slave of Christ at the same time. 
So I'm gonna give you a little bit of background as to why Paul even wrote this in Galatians. What, what was behind this, this little verse? So Paul was being accused of being a people pleaser by the false teachers who were the Judaizers. They were accusing him of watering down the gospel and making it too easy for the people to accept. The Judaizers were preaching a false gospel of works and faith, whereas Paul was preaching a gospel of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. So the Judaizers, of course, hating the true gospel, were accusing Paul of appealing to the people by people-pleasing, essentially, by saying, you're making this too easy because they should, the people should still be circumcised, they should still be adhering to the law, and you're making this too easy. And so Paul then comes around and says, there is no possible way this could be true because you cannot be a bond slave of Christ and you cannot fear man at the same time. They are entirely opposed to one another. The accusations against, so this is John MacArthur, the, the accusations against Paul involved the lie that he was purposely watering down the divine standard to make it easy so that he would be popular and win the support of the people weary of the hard demanding way of legalistic Judaism. They purported that he was simply saying what man wanted to hear. So there is of course a bit of irony here because they were accusing him of seeking the favor of man, but in essence, that was the exact opposite of what he was actually doing. So in contrast to the false teachers who were promoting a gospel by works, teaching things such as the need for Gentile believers to be circumcised for salvation, Paul was teaching salvation by grace through faith. Unfortunately, the believers in the church of Galatia were being persuaded to follow the teaching of the false teachers instead of the true gospel that Paul had taught them. So when we read Galatians 1.10, Paul lays out the reason why their accusations cannot be true. He explains that you either strive to please people or you strive to please God. You can't do both. There is a little word in that verse that I want you to pay attention to. Paul wrote this, if I were, what's the next word? Still, if I were still trying to please men. So what does this imply? It implies that there was a time that he was striving to please man, but he no longer is doing that. So there are a couple of passages that I wanted to um, bring to your attention where Paul describes his life before salvation. So Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he writes this, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So he's saying he could have confidence in himself to, and the desire to please people. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. We're going to come back and talk about that phrase in a minute as well. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He was the, the standard of Judaism, doing all the right things. 
But what was the whole premise of this? It was rules that you had to live up to. It had nothing to do with a humble heart that sought to please God. And so his whole goal was to live the part, do the things, so that he was living according to that law, which was ultimately, remember the Pharisees went in and added all these rules and strayed from what God had intended of the law to be. So this became a man-made standard. And thus, because Paul was living entirely for that, his goal was to live according to man's standard, which is the fear of man. And then in Galatians 1, 13 and 14, and this is just a couple of verses later, so if you still have your Bibles open, you can read with me. Starting in verse 13, it says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So Paul was so zealous to live according to this man-made standard. Before his conversion, Paul lived for the approval of man. He would not at that time have thought that's what he was doing. He was living according to the law is what he thought. So he wouldn't have recognized his slavery to the fear of man. This worked out well for him because he had all the human accommodations and honor. From a human standpoint, he had it all. So there is one specific aspect of his description that I want to look at a little more closely. So I just pointed that out as we were reading. He said, as to the law, a Pharisee. So what exactly did he mean when he said that? So Jesus explains in Matthew 23 through 27, uh, 23, sorry, 27 and 28, he says this, and this will help to give us a little bit of understanding about what Paul is referring to. So Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Remember what woe means, judgment on you. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Clearly the Pharisees were absolutely opposed to Christ. And so they did not truly have faith in the one true God. So really, they were absolutely opposed to what would be the true gospel. And so how are they described? Inwardly, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, we are believers if we have placed our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. So we aren't going to be quite like the Pharisees. However, we can still act in a pharisaical way and we can still be hypocritical we can still be enslaved to sin and that's why we have to take this so seriously when jesus preached the sermon on the mount he warned the people not to be like the pharisees who were hypocrites before conversion paul was a lawless hypocrite he was more concerned with practicing his religious traditions before man than he was of being holy before God. 
but he was entirely blinded by his own sin. He did not see that. So B on your outline, small b, seeking to please people rather than God fosters hypocrisy and sin. So Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So Paul had been a Pharisee, not a half-hearted, complacent Pharisee, but a devout, zealous one. Acts 8.3 explains that, so remember, before he was converted, he was referred to as Saul. So it said this, Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. But according to Galatians 1.10, he was an entirely changed man. Those things were before his conversion. Now his loyalty was to Jesus, not to man's tradition, not to their expectation, and not to their standard. So notice what he says in Philippians 4, 7, and 8, after he listed all his credentials. So Philippians 4, 7, and 8, Paul wrote this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. There are so many things that we can uh, think of when we seek to apply this verse, but I would say here as well, one of the things that Paul valued so much was his ability to keep the standard of the law, which was for the approval of man. And what does he say? I count all of that loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. And of course, we have to draw the application there. When we have the fear of man, it's because we have lost sight of what our most important goal is, that we would know Christ. And so we need to count the opinion of others as lost to us as it compares to Christ. Because we need to be willing to live according to what he desires at all times so that he is honored and glorified. The opinion of man, and I'm not talking here, we can do whatever we want and we don't care what people say. So just so that I'm clarifying that, I'm talking about when we live according to the standard in obedience to God's word, at that point we are seeking what pleases God, not what, what pleases man. Paul considered all his human credentials as loss because he now was a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He no longer lived to please man. He didn't care about others' opinion of him. Instead, his goal was to please Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says this, and keep in mind, I'm reading things that Paul wrote. So this is Paul as well. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to what? To be pleasing to him. 
This was Paul's entire goal now, that he would be pleasing to God at whatever the cost to himself. And you guys remember what Paul went through on his missionary journeys when he was beaten and whipped, left for dead, stoned, persecuted, shipwrecked, all the things with people coming against him at every turn. And yet he says, that is no longer important to me. I count all those things where I had all the honor and prestige. I count that as loss. I would rather be shipwrecked. I would rather be stoned. I would rather be whipped. I would rather be beaten as a bond slave of Jesus Christ than to have the good approval of people who hate God. And of course, the same must be true for us. If we are true believers saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we cannot live for the approval or opinion of others. Otherwise, we cannot function as a bond slave of Christ. So C, small c on your outline. When our ambition is to please Christ, it eliminates the fear of man. And of course, we've somewhat already alluded to that in the study in previous weeks, I think. But we need to have the fear of God because when we have the fear of God, all other fears diminish. And that includes the fear of man as well. So capital B, pleasing people or the fear of man. So we're going to look at this for just a quick minute. So Lou Priolo explains it like this, and this is taken out of Pleasing People, the red book right there. He wrote this, Good and lawful desires become corrupted when they are desired inordinately. When you want something good, such as desiring your spouse to love you, or your children to honor you, or your boss to treat you with respect, so much that you are willing to sin in order to fulfill your desire, or you might sin as a result of your desire not being fulfilled, your desires become idolatrous. They are wrong because you have longed for them too intently. So our fear of man isn't always that it is coming from a sinful place initially. Does that make sense? Because desiring a good relationship with your kids or your spouse or your coworker can be a really good thing. But sometimes it is not possible because of whatever is going on with them. And if that is the case, we can then end up fearing man because we want that thing to such a degree that it becomes idolatrous to us and then we fail to be the bond slave of Christ because we want the approval of this particular person so much. You see this so much with people who want the approval of their parents. People that have grown up maybe in a difficult family life, perhaps abusive even. I've had numerous ladies I've counseled and even friends where they are so desirous of the approval of their parents and yet they can't ever fully achieve it and so it becomes something they crave and desire to get but that 
means that it becomes idolatrous when you desire that more than you desire to please the Lord. So number one, the fear of man is rooted in pride. So pride, what is pride? So this is from Webster's 1828. Inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office. Pride drives our fear of man and influences how we think and act. Always at the root of our desire for others to think well of us or to approve of us, uh, I think I read that wrong, always at the root is our desire for others to think well of us or to approve of us in a variety of ways. And what is that rooted in? Pride. I want other people to approve of me. I want them to like my decisions. I want them to like me. I want them to approve how I look. Whatever it is, the fear of man is always rooted in pride. Look again at how Jesus described the Pharisees. They lusted for the approval of man. Their pride craved man's respect, honor, devotion, and praise. Matthew 23, 5 through 7, and then, um, nope, I'm just going to read 5 through 7, says this. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They loved for people to think they were something important. And even on the lowest level of the fear of man, that's the same of us as well. We want the approval of others in one form or another. <clears throat> the problem with the Pharisees is that they desired the recognition of people and cared nothing for the approval of God. So notice what Jesus says a couple of verses later. But the greatest among you shall be your what? Servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The problem is we want our exaltation now. And that exaltation is going to be in eternity. We want people to think we're something special now. We want people to think we know something, we are something, we have a certain position or whatever it is. I have a feeling when I turn down the volume, they couldn't hear me. Uh-oh. Sorry, guys. I'm a little distracted by that this morning. Can you tell? <clears throat> okay. So humility is the thing to pursue, not the approval of man that is rooted in pride. So Proverbs 13.10 says this, Through insolence, pride, or pride, that's what the word insolence means there, through pride comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. So number two, some of the dangers of being enslaved to the fear of man. People we seek to please are rarely satisfied. Proverbs 27, 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of men ever satisfied. 
So if we are living, remember I, I gave the example of the child or even the adult child seeking the approval of the parents. You're constantly trying to do what is going to please that person to gain their approval. And the problem is the heart of man is never satisfied. So you are pursuing something you are likely never to get. B, we cannot please God and people at the same time. Matthew 6, 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And C, pleasing people brings a snare, or that can mean a trap or a noose. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So this was used as an iron ring put through the nostrils of a beast. That's what it's talking about there, to be ensnared. So D, you are a slave to the one whom you serve. Romans 6, 16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So I wanted to give you a little example, and I do not, I know it came out of one of those books. I don't know which book it came out of. I looked, I couldn't find it. But this was very impactful to me when I read this years ago because it's just such a great visual. So I am stealing it from somebody else. I just don't know who. So imagine you have an invisible handle on your back that directs how you live life. Each person you seek to please grabs that handle to direct you in the way that they want you to go. Because each person has a different preference, a different idea, a different opinion, you will constantly be pulled and pushed and steered here and there in all different directions. In one instance, you will be steered in one direction only to be suddenly pushed in the opposite direction a few minutes later because somebody else wants something different than what this person wanted. It is an enslaving way to live. Only as we allow God alone to direct our lives will we be free to live in the manner we were created to live in. When we have a greater fear of God than we do of man, God is the one, for purpose of visual here, that holds that handle and directs us as how we should respond to others, the way that we should live, the things we should prioritize. And when we have all these other voices having expectations of us, needs of us, things they desire of us, manipulating us, whatever it is, when we are directed by God and His Word, we are free from all the entanglements that come with the fear of man. And we can live with a free conscience because here is one of the very difficult things about having the fear of man. We end up with a misguided conscience. And so when, when people have an expectation of us, we feel that it is our duty to meet that need. But is that biblical? If we have a misunderstanding or 
a misdirection in pleasing God versus pleasing people, we are going to respond in ways, even because our conscience is telling us, you need to make that person happy. You need to please that person. You need to do this. You need to do that. But it's entirely misinformed. We have to be informed by the word of God and live according to his word. Because see, what other people call love isn't necessarily always love, is it? They are selfish. They want things from us. But then on the flip side as well, we desire their approval. And so because of that, we are willing to do whatever it is that they're asking oftentimes. So instead, we need C, to be pleasing God. So number one under that, become a bond slave of Christ. So clearly, we must not strive to please people because as Paul said, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. Remember, we read that. So John MacArthur says this, doulos, or the word, that's the Greek word for bond slave, refers to the most servile person in the culture of Paul's day and is often translated slave. Paul was in complete but willing bondage to God. He had no life that he called his own, no will of his own, no purpose of his own or plan of his own. All was subject to his Lord and every thought, every breath and every effort, he was under the mastery of God. So interestingly, Paul tells us that when we are a slave to God, we are actually free. The only true bondage is sin. Galatians 5.1 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The fear of man is like taking that yoke of slavery and put it on us again because we become enslaved to sin. We need to put that off. Christ set us free from the bondage of sin to be his bond slaves. You may wonder, how in the world is that a good thing? So we go from uh, putting aside slavery to sin, but we're still slaves. How does this make sense? So this is reading out of that book, Slave, that I told you about. John MacArthur writes this, To be a slave of Jesus Christ is the greatest benediction imaginable. Not only is he a kind and gracious Lord, but he is also the God of the universe. His character is perfect. His love is infinite. His power is matchless. His wisdom unsearchable. And his goodness beyond compare. It is no wonder then that our relationship to him as our master brings us great benefit and honor. In Roman times, one's experience as a slave was almost entirely dependent on the nature of one's master. The slave of a good, benevolent master could expect to be well cared for and join a secure and peaceful life. In the same way that wicked owners often made life unbearable for their slaves, a gracious master could make the situation pleasant and even desirable for those in his household. Such a master would evoke the loyalty 
and love of his slaves as they served him out of devotion and not just duty. Moreover, the good owner looked after and cared for his slaves through their lives, even into retirement. He would not seek to rid himself of the slave that was no longer useful by reason of age or infirmity. To live under the Lord's sovereign protection and care brings immeasurable comfort, joy, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. But the blessings of being his slave go beyond mere provision. To be the slave of Christ is also a position of great privilege for we are in the company of none other than the king of the universe. Obviously, we can be associated with no one greater. Is that not a beautiful description? Slavery to Jesus Christ is the best imaginable gift that we have. And yet, like the dog returns to his vomit, we go back to slavery, to sin. And one of the ways that that happens is through the fear of man. And we oftentimes don't even recognize that's what's happening. Because remember, sin is deceitful. And so we can be deceived not even realizing to the degree that we wrestle with the fear of man. It's interesting because if you were to ask me if I was a generally fearful person, because you know we're studying fear over the course of the semester, so if you were to ask me if I was a generally fearful person, my answer to you would be, no, not really. But it's because the fear of man doesn't instantly jump into my mind. So I don't experience as much anxiety maybe, but the fear of man is the thing that I have had to wrestle with. So number two, follow Christ's example of humility. Our goal should be focused on pleasing God by humbly becoming bond slaves of Jesus Christ rather than striving to please people, which is rooted in pride. So John 13, 13 through 16 says this, and Jesus was talking, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus wash the disciples' feet as an example to them. And remember the significance of that. Washing somebody's feet in the Middle East was a really nasty job. They wore sandals, their feet were very dusty and dirty. And so the lowliest servant in the house was the one that had the job of washing people's feet. So even if you didn't mind that job, just say, it was still looked at as the lowliest responsibility in the household. And yet Jesus was saying that that's exactly what he was doing. And so for us within the church body, a lot of times as we serve, we hope somebody notices what we did. We hope somebody notices how good we did it, 
how much time we put into it, how difficult that job was, how talented we are, all kinds of things we can desire even within the church body. But our goal needs to be humility like Christ. And we really need to be praying for it, which is a scary thing because God answers. And he does bring humility through humiliation oftentimes. But why would we want anything else? We ought to rather have humility through the humiliation so that we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ following his example as opposed to being the proud person that is recognized and praised. It should be our desire to serve others even in the lowliest, least, notable, no, least noticeable places rather than seeking recognition or affirmation from others. As we live and interact with each other within the church body, we need to be mindful of areas that we seek the approval or acceptance of others rather than Jesus Christ. So what I did is I made a list here of places that we need to be striving to put off sinful fear of man. And I tried to make it really applicable within the church body here. So number three, put off the sinful fear of man. So small a under that, do not expect to have the place of honor. This sneaks up on us in places we didn't even know it existed because somebody has a get together and we thought we were good friends with that person and we weren't invited. Or maybe it's a wedding. And what happens? All of a sudden we're offended and we're feeling sorry for ourselves because we were left out. But what is that really a symptom of? I thought I was more important than I am. Luke 14, 10. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who you are at the table with. Now, keep in mind, you don't have a false humility here. Because we don't, oh, no, no, that's okay. But secretly, that's what you really desire. I'm not talking about that. But a lot of times we're so puffed up in our own imagination that we do expect that we have a greater place of honor in somebody else's life. And when that doesn't happen, all of a sudden we're devastated. B, do not boast about yourself, your abilities, accomplishments, or successes of your ministry. Proverbs 27, 2 says this, Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. We need to be careful that we aren't seeking to gain approval and praise for ourselves. I worked with a lady for several years and I always appreciated one thing that she would say as we would be working on various things whatever like we might put on a tea or something and she would say when people would come and say oh you did such a great job and she would say oh it was all of us 
it was all, this was, I did not, I just was part of this. And I always appreciated that because I was used to just saying, oh, thanks. You said I did good. I agree, thanks. And I suddenly realized by listening to her, the pride that was in my heart. Because even having to say that I shared this with somebody else meant that I didn't get all the glory. And so then I had to wrestle through, okay, you know what? It's better to praise others and encourage others. Look at what the Lord has done through all of us together. That has nothing to do with my great skill or effort. It's the blessing of the Lord as we all worked on this. So uh, C, be more concerned for the needs of others than for yourself. Do not, so uh, Philippians 2, 4 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Consider who is around you. Consider how your fear of man is harmful to them. Is that the best thing for them? Just in that first example that I gave you, it would be way easier for me to look at my own personal interests and avoid all the stress of having this confrontation. But I need to consider your interest as more important than my own. And so I need to be willing to do hard things sometimes, even if it costs me. D, speak truth and love. And this really can go along with that first example as well. Ephesians 4:15 But speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ and why if we skip down to the next verse at the end here's what it says for the building up of itself in love for the building up of the body that's why we speak truth to one another in love confronting one another in our sin because that builds up the entire body when we're willing to do that. And the fear of man will prevent us from doing that. E, let your spirituality be for God and not man. So I read this verse previous, but I'm going to read it again now. Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So we need to be careful that even the disciplines that we have, if we say, I'm reading through the Bible this year, we aren't doing that for the sake of being able to trumpet it to everybody else. I read through the Bible this year. That makes me a little more spiritual. We can even do the right things for entirely wrong motives, and it profits us nothing, and it's harmful to other people. F. Do not be fearful of sharing your faith. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. This is a testimony of the Apostle Paul, which we know is true. He came bringing the true gospel for the sake of others. And he was pleasing God as he did that not seeking to please man. And then the last one is G, serve heartily to please God and not people. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, 
Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So as we think through this whole topic of fear, we really do need to think about how it affects us in our own body so that we are seeking to love one another biblically, love one another well, and recognizing that when we fear each other's approval, this is harmful to us and it's harmful to the other person and then it's harmful to the body as a whole. So as we think through the chapter that we just read this week on how to approach people in the church that maybe are difficult, that maybe have problems, we need to be sure that we are first bond slaves of Jesus Christ before we strive to do that. So with all those things, let's pray. 